It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. It almost reads like a dystopian plot from a sci-fi novel, playing out in the not-so-distant future. A major world government relies on a defective and cruel algorithm for debt collection to extort money out of its most vulnerable citizens who are already on social assistance. Or to put it more succinctly, state-sponsored shakedowns via artificial intelligence that ends up being so flawed it results in the country taking hundreds of millions of dollars from its own people. Sounds unreal, right? Well, this actually happened in Australia, a major country with a huge economic footprint around the world. For more on the story, we've got Motherboard Editor Jordan Pearson on Cyber. And I'm Ben Maku, reporting from my kitchen. Jordan, welcome to Cyber. Thanks for having me on. This story is quite frightening. It's one of those stories that is futuristic, but it happened in the present and in the, in the very recent past. It's dystopic. But let's let's go back. So what happened in Australia in 2016? Where does the story begin? Right. So the story where it begins is uh, probably far before 2016, uh, because really this grew out of the Australian government's general approach to welfare uh, and welfare payments and uh, used some of the same techniques that uh, the government had been using for a long time. But where this really kind of kicked into overdrive was with the introduction of uh, automation without human oversight. So in 2016, what you had happen was uh, the conservative leaning government was angling for re-election. And their pitch is basically to say, you know, we're going to balance the budget. This is something that, you know, obviously conservative governments we're very familiar with say this quite often. Uh, and the way they wanted to do this, uh, which this this will really tell you the whole story almost, is the way they were going to balance the budget was to claw back over $2 billion in alleged welfare overpayments. So this is people that have received government assistance over the years, uh, and the government believes that they didn't deserve that money, so now they're going to come back and ask them to pay up. Uh, and just like the huge amount of money that was attached to this, like basically saying you're going to balance the entire government's budget by taking money back from people who had received welfare uh, is really, you know, it sort of blows your hair back when you think about it. But this was the pitch at the time. Um, the government was elected. Uh, the government, the same government, although with a different leader, like the same party, but with a different leader remains in power today. And uh, that person, the prime minister, uh, Scott Morrison uh, was actually the treasurer uh, at the time that RoboDebt was introduced. Um, so what you basically had was a pitch from a conservative government that was like fiscally conservative, socially conservative, basically cast welfare recipients as people who didn't deserve what they got and we're going to fix the government by taking it back from them. Uh, so that was the basic setup, uh, and it got implemented. It was tested that summer in 2016, got implemented ahead of Christmas. Uh, and basically, people started getting letters, notifications, and debt collector calls, uh, basically saying, hey, like, you know, you received government assistance like five to 10 years ago. Um, you owe us like two to 
you owe us like six thousand dollars or like ten thousand yeah like these debts were like multiple thousands of dollars uh, and this was, so this was just to be clear as well this they're they're calculating figuring this all out off of an algorithm some magical algorithm exactly so this was all done in an automated fashion you know that the system would essentially like look through uh welfare filings and then match it with uh tax office filings and then you know if someone like basically it's like if their tax data didn't match with their income reporting um they were like oh so you didn't deserve that money uh the problem was was that this algorithm was basically really crappy um and what it did was uh first of all the data matching was not great so uh, the way this algorithm was explained to me uh, was that it's COBOL, which is a, a programming language that was invented in the 1950s. Uh, so it was that programming language mashed together with an Excel sheet. And then that was just allowed to run essentially without human oversight uh, and generate letters to send to people saying, you owe us X amount of money. Uh, so the main issues were poor data matching uh, without like human oversight. and also what was called income averaging. So it's a little complicated, but like what it boils down to is basically people would report their incomes like in over like several weeks, several weeks periods, fortnightly periods. And the algorithm would like average their income over an entire year. So it would give the picture that, you know, they were earning a consistent amount of money uh, over the year uh, when that wasn't really the case. So when you look at the data and you're like, oh, they were making money throughout the entire year. Why did they get, why did they get these payments? Then you say, oh, they owe a debt. But um, as we know now, uh, and the government has admitted, you know, this was unlawful, admitted their error to it, uh, that these debts were essentially fake. Uh, and people were, you know, hounded for these debts uh, for years, but initially, you know, right before Christmas, which is kind of doubly cruel. It's cruel, but also, you know, this is an example of a government relying on an algorithm, a piece of technology. Clearly, there's no strong oversight on it. It's just sort of allowing the machine, for lack of a better term, to sort of take over, demand money from people, not verify whether or not that's actually lawful or not. And then, you know, like, how many years did this go on for? This went on for like four years and actually is... Uh, still ongoing, although uh, in a different way. Uh, like they've halted the income averaging part of it and they've admitted that that part was the unlawful part. But as far as I know, like the automation aspect isn't something that they've actually admitted is anything they've done wrong. Uh, so at least four years, uh, potentially more, we'll see where the story goes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so for, for a long time. That's that's incredible. I mean, what was the fallout from this in Australia? Um, well, so I've been following the story for for a few years, and you know, all of the credit really goes to like the reporters uh, there and elsewhere who have been writing about this. And I've really just been reading their great work, digging up stuff. Uh, but you know, the fallout was um, really tragic. Like, uh, obviously, all of a sudden, people can't afford. Christmas presents, uh, you know, they have to make drastic changes to their lifestyles. They have to deal with this like 
multiple thousands dollars debt that is now like in front of them. Um, so, you know, some people just paid up uh, or they appealed the debt and a few and in a few cases, the debts were actually found um, to be, yeah, fake uh, because the onus is essentially on the person. Like when you get one of these letters, it's like you owe us a debt unless you can prove otherwise. So if you can't prove otherwise, just pay up. But some people did go through the process to appeal it um, and and they were successful. But I mean, overall, like it's just you can imagine what what people like this does to people like trauma, stress. Um, and, you know, this is really sad, but, you know, some families have attributed their loved one's death by suicide um, to receiving uh, these debt notices, uh, which is actually something that the government. Uh, the head of uh, Australia's Department of Social Services actually denies like they just had a hearing like a few weeks ago where the head of social services was just like they were asking her questions about robo debt and she was just obstinately saying like, oh, what is robo debt? I don't agree on what that term means. And also like I reject that people died because of this. Um, so the fallout was essentially like people were really traumatized and treated terribly and went through very trying life circumstances um, while the government sort of uh, dissembled and stalled and blocked uh, and iterated on the program, actually improving it. Uh, by improving it, I mean like, you know, adding uh, things to the system, not necessarily alleviating people's, um, alleviating people's circumstances, but, you know, continuing it and iterating on it through, through all of these years. I mean, people when people get debt notices, period, from the government. I mean, you know, here in the U.S., you get a notice from the IRS. It's it's petrifying. People talk about this as the psychological effects of it. It's like it, it can be crushing, especially when you look at something like six thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. This is enough to cripple a family or cripple an individual and in their financial stability. But sure. I think you know the the amazing thing is is that this is sort of a great situation where the cyber went really wrong. <laughs> you know, the yeah. algorithm, the algorithm wasn't right. And it, it, this increasing dependence on pieces of technology is these sorts of miracle substitutions for human beings looking into things and verifying them is, you know, it's, it's really scary. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned like the psychological effect. I mean, when you think of like, uh, IRS notices, like the most, the most that my experience that I have with it and probably a lot of people's in North America is like scam calls, like scammers know this, right? Like scammers know that getting a call from the IRS is scary mm -hmm. and people can be coerced into doing things mm -hmm. that they wouldn't do in a proper state of mind because, uh, the IRS is calling them. So like if scammers know that works, like imagine when it's an actual communique from the government, like it's real. So yeah, I mean, the psychological impact, like I can imagine just must've been immense. Like, you know, the government tells you something and it's, and it's your fault, right? Like the government is telling you, you have stolen money from the public purse. You didn't deserve that. Terrifying. Now you must pay us. Terrifying. Uh, yeah, for sure. I don't want to go to debt, debt jail, exactly. tax jail. We're both from Ontario. I know people had to do like weekend tax jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like a good time. So no, it does yeah, not. People paid. people paid. I mean, so how much in total did the Australian government steal, essentially? 
I mean, a lot. <laughs> so like they, so they've pledged to pay back um, almost a billion dollars, seven hundred twenty-one million dollars. Wow! From nearly four hundred thousand people, um, and that's just the debts that they've admitted are unlawful. Those are just the; those aren't all the robo debt debts. In total, like something like more than seven hundred thousand people received robo debt letters. And uh, only about half of those, the government is saying they're going to pay back because uh, it used like what they've admitted was unlawful, which is the uh, the income averaging part of this. Um, so at least almost a billion dollars, and that doesn't include like damages, uh, which they may get from a class action lawsuit or anything like that. Um, so it's it's a lot of money. Like when you think about that much money coming from just like average people's pockets, like. You know, it boggles the mind. It's a lot. Yeah, it's staggering. I mean, the question I have about this is, I mean, you're you're someone who's followed the labor beat quite closely, and I want to know. I mean, are there are there other governments, other world governments, implementing similar systems? Like, does the IRS do something like this? Does Canada do something like this? Is this something that happens in the EU? Uh, it sounds like it could be, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes, uh, and. So why I mentioned earlier that this started before 2016 is because um, data matching and income averaging are both things that Australia did prior to 2016 and which um, many, probably most, um, welfare uh, departments do. It makes sense, right? Like they need to track overpayments. Um, so data matching between the tax office uh, or like income filings or, or whatever, like uh, this is what they do. Uh, and in Australia, up until RoboDebt became an issue, um, this was done with a lot of human oversight. So Terry Carney, who uh, is a professor emeritus at uh, University of Sydney, he was he actually uh, helped write uh, some of Australia's social security laws. And he was part of the basically the tribunal that would uh, evaluate um, people's appeals. So if someone had a robo-debt appeal, like they were like, I, I don't want to pay this debt, I don't think this is real, this guy would look at it. And he was part of this uh, committee uh, for, for, for decades. Um, and he told me that, you know, pre prior to robo-debt, like, yeah, they did all this stuff, but because of the human oversight, um, there they only really proceeded with like 7% of cases, like 93, 93% of cases were just like thrown out. They didn't pursue them. Um, and you know, that ticked up to like a hundred percent or close to a hundred percent with robo debt because that human oversight was just cut out to be this like automated system of just like churning out debt notices based on data matching and income averaging, which when there was more human oversight, like most of it was determined to be garbage because it was. Um, so this seems like kind of like the critical flaw, which, which really speaks to like how, um, they conceive of people on welfare. Like, you know, they're not deserving of like human oversight or like a human in the loop to like give, uh, some care and attention to their case. Um, so aspects of this definitely are going on elsewhere, uh, which is a scary thought. And, uh, yeah, like with more trust in algorithms and things like that, like it, it's easy to see like where where this can sort of be replicated uh, well, even in Australia again. Yeah, listening to talk about this, you know, it, 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 it shows and it's an example. And, I, you know, I consider these two things quite linked in that it shows that a government, it's an example of this, that 
a government is trusting in an algorithm. It's trusting in artificial intelligence to make critical critical decisions on human beings and their lives. And if you, you know, you said something like human in the loop, <laughs> and, you know, you can't help but think of the ways in which militaries and drone technologies are increasing that we're kind of staring down the barrel of algorithms that can control whether or not someone dies, right? Someone gets killed by a robot. And I think if you're looking at just the ways in which government as a whole is accepting this, this is just, this is an example of that. It's just, it's, it's clearly not as, as spectacular and lethal right now, but it shows that this is across the board, something we need to keep an eye on. Yeah. Just in the drones, you know, like. Yeah. And like, I think, What's interesting about this, what's really revealing um, about this case and which intersects with, you know, the military and other things that you mentioned, uh, we can also talk about policing algorithms or, you know, algorithms for protect for predicting criminal um, recidivism, uh, these types of things like it's I feel like, you know, governments choose which things to just leave to a computer and it really reflects I think a lack of care and like, you know, enemy combatants, you know, uh, if you take a human out of the loop there, it's kind of mm -hmm. saying, you know, not even worth like the human effort or like decision-making to like take your life. Um, and like, you know, criminals or people in the criminal justice system, many of whom are, you know, uh, black or people of color or marginalized in other ways. Um, obviously they bear the brunt of these automated systems. And in Australia with this case, you, you know, you also see like a group of people, um, you know, people on government payments basically who are subject to all sorts of like nasty stereotypes. Um, like in Australia, they call it a dull bludger, which is like the typical stereotype of someone who gets welfare and just sits around and collects welfare. And that's what they do, kind of a leech on the system. And, you know, clearly this group of people was seen as acceptable to like prey on as a whole, just like, you know, let the machine loose on them. Like they, we need to take back all of what was taken from us as a government. Um, and yeah, so I think these systems that we automate when they have, you know, real impacts on people's lives, um, it speaks a lot to like what society thinks of those groups of people. Mm -hmm. um, and That's how such a good point. Started. Yeah, and I think we see this over and over again that like these systems are sort of let loose on people who um, are really, you know, already victimized by society um, or who society, who society or governments already see as a group that can be like targeted um, for various reasons. Right, it's the most marginalized communities that will be targeted for by these types of, I mean, honestly, like I, I don't hesitate to call this sort of a governmental weapon. Yeah, like, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely fair to say that, like, not just in Australia, but, like, everywhere, like, the welfare system is, like, weaponized against people. Like, it's extremely punitive. Like, being in that system is running through a constant mental hellscape and just, like, living in a world of, like, fear and doubt uh, and really being, like, at the mercy of this system. So, like, even if, like, robo-debt had never um, happened, like, it doesn't change the fact that, like, the welfare system is already this like punitive machine directed at a group of people. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of our institutions. I, 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 I'm, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, the other thing too is this is just, this is just automated government shakedown. It's like some mafia government shit. 
except yeah. they they turn to a they turn to an AI to do the dirty work. Absolutely, and I think that's a lot of what animated uh, a lot of the really incredible like activist response to this in Australia. Um, like a really important part of this story is like how people sort of banded together and lifted up each other's voices, uh, because like part of the way this works is through shame, right? And mm -hmm. people like not wanting to like if you're told that like you took money from the public that you didn't deserve, like that's not something you want to advertise. Like it's probably like a source of shame or like uh, it's embarrassing or like it's a it's a personal problem that you probably just want to go away. Um, so really like, you know, this could have been like the, like for a while, it could have been that nobody would even know about this. Like this was just happening to individuals. Um, but what these activists did was sort of like get together, uh, and start really publicizing these stories and making it an issue because yeah, like people were seeing it as like, um, a shakedown or, uh, Asher Wolf, uh, who, uh, was, is, uh, someone in Australia, um, who sort of participated in the activist push behind uh, RoboDebt. Um, you know, she described it to me as like working like a scam. Um, and I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and it led to some pretty interesting stuff. Like people occupied uh, a lawmaker's office and like burned uh, RoboDebt notices. Um, so Tight. like things got pretty heated. Yeah. And like, for good reason, you know, like this, like experiencing this is like, um, people saw it as really unacceptable. All right. Well, Jordan, thank you very much for coming on the show. This story is incredibly important. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk about it. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Lorenzo, Lorenzo, Lorenzo. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We're back. It's. I'm getting a little bit of that end of summer, like that end of summer sadness. I'm just like, oh. Yeah. I, I hate to say that. That what's that song? Summertime sadness by Delana Del Rey, right? Uh, I don't know. I. I'm getting that end of summertime sadness. Yeah. I'm just like, oh. Please, God, let's not get thrown back into a quarantine. Yeah, me too. Please, oh, please. Also, today it's raining here in New York. It's gray. It's gloomy. But yeah, I don't like that. It's still not over. You know, the weather still will be okay. Uh, there's still a lot to live for. There is. It's just everybody out there, wear your fucking mask, okay? Yep. Wear your fucking Do it, mask. Please. Anyway, all right, let's start. Cypher, I'm going to get pissed off. All right, 
This is one of you. We got two of your stories this week. How about that? Oh, yeah. It's a leading. It's a it's a Lozo. It's a Lozo cipher is what it is. Oh, yeah. OK, so I mean, let's talk about this first one. I, I love I love these types of stories because they they pop up every once in a while. If you keep an eye on contracting sites and on 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 job applications, et cetera. But you caught Amazon doing something pretty, pretty gross, actually. It, it's gross. Yeah, I think it's good. Just, we just call it as gross. Yeah, we- but they're hiring an intelligence analyst to track labor organizing threats. <laughs> yeah, we know we know that Amazon is not a huge fan of uh, employees organizing and unions. And, you know, in this job listing, the company spelled that out in incredibly crude, crude terms. Um, as you said, they, they in one of the listings, uh, they said that they're looking for an intelligence analyst uh, to track, quote, uh, labor organizing threats against the company. Um, and in two other places in the listing, the company specified labor uh, organizing as a threat. Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, you know, it's just like they're laying it out uh, clearly for everyone. And uh, we reached out to Amazon after seeing this uh, circulating on Twitter. Um, and the company for more than four hours did not respond. And then the response was that the listing was made in error and that they and they took down the listings, which what and one of them was had been up since January. So and wasn't this like, yeah, exactly. It's up since January. It's not as if they didn't know that this shit was going down. They just they just got caught. It's a classic case if they got caught. Yeah, it's a I feel like they should have just not said anything. You know, it's like. I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if I remember, I feel really believe you that this was an error. It's been up for months. Well, no, I mean, you don't believe it at all. Like, it's like, who, quick question. I mean, I have my ideas, but what kind of intelligence analyst would they get? Who would get that contract, do you think? Well, it's it's a good question. Uh, the the jobs were for the, uh, their department is called Global Security Operations, Global Intelligence Program. And this is not something um, strictly related to cyber, cybersecurity. It's more like corporate security, physical security, uh, industrial espionage, you know, traditional industrial espionage. So for a job like this, uh, you probably could get someone who has worked in law enforcement, maybe even in the intelligence community, former NSA, former CIA. Mm -hmm. Uh, These big Silicon Valley companies actually have a lot of former spooks uh, working these kind of jobs. Um, It's Silicon Valley and... We should also say there is a lot of private intelligence firms that kick around DC, and even mm-hmm. some of the traditional ones like G4S. These types of security companies will get those contracts and will deploy someone. I remember a few years ago, I did a story on how the Canadian Special Forces had like advertised for an intelligence expert, and it was like weird, sort of bizarre, not like partially hacking and understanding how to how to like target with a drone etc and i remember it was a similar thing i like caught them and i mm. you know i emailed asked for comment and then i ended up getting like an off the record phone call mm. you know being like we made a mistake we made a mistake it's like that thing was up for months yeah like, that's uh that's fun what are you talking about yeah but i do feel like these companies will and governments will will advertise to the private industry uh for these types of intelligence analysts, I think increasingly you're seeing companies do this because, you know, I, I do think the war on terror years has, has sort of created a, a massive, a massive class of people who've worked either in intelligence or in sort of the secret parts of the military and companies that have money 
for-profit companies have have a reason to hire these types of people. And it's sort of like redeploying SIGINT intelligence and military tactics towards the private industry, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, uh, you know, you can understand why former spooks would do this, right? You know, it's uh, probably, a, you know, a safer job in terms of, you know, their own uh, personal safety. It gets paid more than working for the cops or the or the intelligence community. So yeah, you you get why that happens, and it's been happening for so long that it's starting to be uh, like a trope for for TV shows. Like I don't know if you saw Devs, uh, uh, this show on uh, on Showtime that was uh, what's it called? It's called Devs, and uh, it's made by the oh, guy yeah. that uh, the director of Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah. And the whole premise is that there's a giant uh, tech uh, company in Silicon Valley, and they start doing uh, really sketchy stuff. Uh, and uh, one of the main characters is their their head of intelligence. Cough Palantir. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very like uh, not so veiled uh, criticism of Silicon Valley, and it, and it's really good. And uh, one of the main characters is the the head of intelligence of the of the company. Hmm. I'm gonna check that out. Well, speaking of social media companies doing weird things, we've got uh, we've got more, um, and this one is is more geared towards our current presidential election, which will be a hellscape, a hellfire, a burning can of trash. I don't know how to tell what other metaphor we can use for just how much of a doomsday this whole thing will be. Like we have the president of the United States coming on, God. coming on a major network this morning saying that people from the shadows are controlling Joe Biden. We're in trouble, man. I, I like, I don't care what political affiliation you are. This is just, this whole thing is just yes a rotting, like that, that like rotting shark food that Vikings Yeah, ate. please spare a thought for us journalists who have to cover this for two more months, probably more than two, two months. Two more months. I can't even, this is just, this is going to get worse. Yeah, yeah, this is not even um, about who you like. It's just, it's going to be tough. No, it's just going to suck. Um, so Twitter is letting people threaten Joe Biden's cybersecurity expert. Yeah, this was a- That's quite the headline. Yeah, this was another, what the fuck are you doing company, tech, Silicon Valley tech company. So- so Joe Biden, the Joe Biden campaign recently hired a cybersecurity expert called Jackie, Jackie Singh. And a couple of weeks ago, Jackie uh, posted a selfie in front of a busted hydrant, you know, sort of like a classic uh, New York scene. And uh, then a Twitter account called Illmob, uh, which is a name that some of our readers may remember because this was a group of hackers that gathered on Facebook to post uh uh, pretty shitty comments about women and minorities and L- LGBTQ people. Um, so this Twitter account reposted the selfie with a screenshot of the Google Street View address where it was taken. Um, they redacted the address, so it wasn't very obvious where the picture was taken, but it was sort of like done in a menacing way because uh, there was there was a Where's Waldo picture uh, that said, Where is Jackie? And, you know, like, I, I, I don't see how anyone can look at this and not see a threat. Um, but Singh uh, reported this to Twitter for a cup, for a day or, or more. Twitter didn't do anything. Actually, Twitter told her that uh, it wasn't against their policies. We reached out to Twitter to say, hey, what's going on here? And one other uh, spokesperson said that, uh, that indeed uh, the tweet did not violate its policies. 
even though its policy on publishing private information literally prohibits, quote, threatening to expose private information or incentivizing others to do so. So we, we published the story and lo and behold, uh, you know, 30 minutes, an hour later, Twitter suspended the account. So I guess, I guess it did, it did uh, violate the policy after all. Yeah, I get like, I guess it did. I guess it did. I, I mean, I think the moral of the story is Twitter has to come down on on people who are I mean, doxing other people and then posting the findings on their social media site when they're called out. It's also like one of those things where how come journalists will find ways to find these sorts of accounts and then they'll go to the big companies like Facebook. The same thing with like Boogaloo Boys when it takes journalists to go to them and say like, look at all these, you know, fucked up accounts doing fucked up things. And then they'll take it down. It's like, why don't you, aren't you like a multi-billion dollar company that hires people willy-nilly? Like hire some people like us to stop this stuff. Like it's not hard. Yeah, also in this case, they didn't, they did not even need to be proactive. Uh, Singh reported the tweet. Uh, she publicly posted about the tweet. So other people reported it to Twitter. You know, they had the reports. They just, you know, they just didn't think he was uh, violating the policies, which is crazy. Um like really, like you have the policies, just apply them. Do your job. Yep, I agree. Do your job. All right. So this last one is is a Lauren special. She's been killing it this entire pandemic on labor reporting, and this one's about a vegan meat company and some anti-union speeches that were being scrubbed by the company. So tell me more. Yeah, this is a perfect like twenty twenty dystopia labor dystopia story. There's a vegan foods, uh, foods company called No Evil Foods uh, who has been covered by Lauren uh, in the last few months because they they are publicly and very uh, openly anti-union. Uh, so they their workers tried to unionize earlier this year. Uh, the company launched a, a very fierce campaign. Eventually, the company won and the, the workers did not unionize. But in the process, the the company used all the classic tactics about uh, with union busting. Uh, they even organized the meetings to tell their workers that the unions are bad and why they shouldn't join the union. And some of their employees recorded these meetings and these sort of speeches and um, sent them to journalists to you know denounce how the company was working uh, to stop the union unionization effort. And these recordings that were posted online um, by Lauren and, and us and other people. And uh, what the company decided to do was to double down and send out copyright claims based on the DMCA um, to take down these recordings. And, uh, and it, and it kind of worked. Some, uh, some companies like YouTube and SoundCloud and, uh, and a freelance journalist uh, took it down because, you know, what happens in these cases usually is that with big platforms, actually, these takedowns are automated. Um, so if you don't, if you're the one who posted, the person who posted, if you don't um, protest against the takedown, it gets taken down automatically. I think in the case of the freelance journalist, um, they just got uh, worried and, uh, you know, didn't want to lawyer up. Uh, but, you know, this was clearly an, in an intimidation um, campaign and copyright experts told Lauren that uh, recordings or transcriptions of speeches are completely uh, fair game. You know, it's fair fair use. And so, yeah, No Evil Foods is likely abusing the law here. All right, well, that wraps it up. 
and you will be hearing from us next week. Lorenzo, thanks again for being here. As always, Barcelona sucks. Bye. Well, okay, bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.